how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 401, where I sat down with writer-director Matt Ruskin, best known for his latest project, Boston Strangler. In this interview, we talk about running at the things you want to do, the slow burn of a pressure cooker, and the obligation of truth. In the latest story, Boston Strangler follows the, the perspective of two female writers, played by Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon. In this interview, we also talk about Matt working with Darren Aronofsky on his first film, Requiem for a Dream. His take on writing two-hander crime stories, how he uncovered this unique perspective on the Boston Strangler, some work he did researching other journalism movies such as Zodiac and All the President's Men, and why he chose to leave out parts of the dialogue Boston is so well known for in his film. You can also find this interview on Creative Screenwriting's website. I went to NYU to study liberal arts, and I, um, I thought I wanted to be a chef. Uh, so I dropped out of NYU to go back to Boston to work for this really incredible chef up there. Um, this guy that I really admired named Chris Schlesinger. I spent a year working at his restaurant and I had a great time. It was really, I learned so much about cooking and about, um, just how to run a, a great business where everybody who worked there was really happy. Um, something that I actually brought over to film production. But after doing that, I, you know, for a year, I realized that um, I, I didn't want to pursue that as a career. Um, and so I transferred, um, I, I went back to NYU and uh, tried to transfer into the film school. So I did, I spent two years of my four years at NYU in, in the film program there. Um, but so I was at this restaurant and I was finishing up the year and I was telling them that I'd go back to NYU and try and transfer into the film school there. And the manager of the restaurant um, knew Darren Aronofsky from Harvard. And so he said, oh, you know, my buddy Darren's starting his second movie. You should give him a call. And so I called Darren and he invited me to come, you know, basically assist and learn on his film. Um so I went down there, I interned for him during pre-production of Requiem for a Dream and then PA'd on the set. And it was the first movie I ever worked on. And it was just an incredible experience for me um, getting to, you know, just be around such an incredible group of filmmakers and to, um, you know, learn from them. After that, I, I was really bit by the bug and I was like, I have to find a way to do this, you know. There's a, a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll start with the first part. Um, can you talk a little bit about the value of kind of like stepping into an apprentice type role kind of for both of those in, in cooking and then later in filmmaking, like how you should approach that as kind of a novice, you know, want to be screenwriter? Yeah, you know, I never set out to be a screenwriter. You know, I did that by necessity, um, which I think is a big part of 
how people make things work in the independent film world is like, you just do whatever you need to do to get something made. Um, but I think that, you know, just running right at the thing you want to do, um, is smart. You know, I think I wish I did more of that earlier in my career. Um, but, you know, I guess I didn't have the courage to apply to the culinary Institute. So I just went to, you know, study liberal arts, but realized I really wanted to do something else. And so, you know, by spending a year in a kitchen and not or in a restaurant and not in a uh, theoretical environment, you know, I learned fairly quickly what the reality of that business is and that, you know, I I found much more, I took much more pleasure in in cooking for four people at home rather than working in the you know, mechanism of a restaurant, um, particularly one that was, you know, serving upwards of 400 people a night. Mm. Um, but I think there's something to be said for just running directly at the thing you want to do. And, um, you know, I also always tried to sort of make people my mentors who I admired, um, and was lucky enough to work for some great people who really were willing to take me under their wing and, and were happy to, to give me an opportunity to learn under them. And so part of that is like, you were just willing to say, Hey, I want to go do this out loud. And then a friend of a friend of, of Darren kind of met you that way. Um, any other advice about how you find those mentors or like, I imagine one thing is like asking really good questions and being around them, but any other advice around that? I just think, you know, um, both. I found that if you tell people what you want to do, um, but you know that, you know, you, you need to start out at the lowest level. Um, they're willing to give you that opportunity to, to be around and, and try and, you know, earn that experience of, um, getting to learn from people. So how did you start to, you kind of said writing was a necessity. How did you start to actually learn the process of screenwriting? Um, well, after I worked on Requiem for a Dream, I actually ended up making documentary films for years, like the better part of a decade. Um, and I was sort of coming out of a film, a documentary film and realized that, you know, the, the thing that made me want to pursue filmmaking was narrative filmmaking and this experience I had working for Darren. Um, so I realized, you know, no one was going to help me. Um, I needed to figure out how to self-generate material and try and push it up the hill. So, you know, it's kind of cliche, man. I just got my hands on like every screenwriting book I could. I took a, like a writer's boot camp course, but I just did everything I could to educate myself. I tried to read scripts that I could get my hands on, um, which was really one of the most instructive things. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, wrote some bad screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll skip a few steps. Uh, tell me about your latest project. Did you like come across a, an article or news record? Like how did you first get involved with the Boston Strangler? Yeah. So um, I had just finished a, an independent film um, that ended up going to Sundance and I was looking for the next thing. And having grown up in Boston, you know, the Boston Strangler was something that I had heard about my whole life, but you know, I realized that I didn't know anything about the case once I started reading about it. Um, and so I just 
dove in, found everything that I could to read and discovered that there was this incredible murder mystery at the heart of the story. And there's this famous Boston Strangler film from 1968 with Tony Curtis. And, uh, you know, what I discovered was that there's a whole nother layer to this story that, that they didn't even approach. They very much told the sort of the, uh, the story from the perspective of the police and the attorney general's office, how they, you know, kind of the best read of how it went down for them. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole nother side to this, um, you know, primarily that no one was ever charged or convicted of any of the Boston Strangler murders. And there's a ton of doubt around the true identity or our identities of the Boston Strangler. And I just found it fascinating, you know, and thought that there was a really compelling movie in there, but for some of those same reasons, it didn't really make sense to tell the like hard boiled detective story. I just, you know, I couldn't get inspired to do that. And I'm not like a serial killer aficionado. That wasn't the draw for me. Um, and then I discovered these two reporters, Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole. Um, I heard like a really brief interview with Loretta and, and found out that she was you know, one of the first reporters to connect the murders. Because you know, in the early 1960s, this was like 10 years before the term serial killer even came into existence. Um, so she was one of the reporters to break the story. And she actually gave the Boston Strangler his name during the course mm. of her reporting. And the paper partnered her up with this other reporter, Gene Cole, and they kind of played on the fact, you know, they definitely took advantage of the fact that they had two women uh, investigating this killer of women, um, but they were serious reporters and they did an incredible job trying to keep the city informed. But so anyway, so I thought, oh, that'd be a really interesting way in. I love journalism movies and I really, you know, respect and admire good journalists and good journalism and so I started reading everything I could about the two of them, but there was like almost no, no information about them available. And I read Jean Cole's obituary and it mentioned that she had two daughters and I looked them up. I actually looked them up on Facebook and one of them had a Facebook profile. Um, yeah, my amateur sleuthing. But anyway, so one of them had a Facebook profile and she had one photograph and in that photograph, she had her arm around an old friend of mine. Um, so I called up my friend and I said, you know, how do you know this woman? And she said, that's her mother. Um, she was like, why are you on my mom's Facebook page? <laughs> uh, but I explained my interest in the story. And she told me that, that Jean Cole was her grandmother and this person who she just totally revered. And so she introduced me to both of the families. And I was able to talk to both Loretta and Jean's kids. And at that point, I just felt like, you know, this was a a story really worth telling. And it felt like a, a really compelling way to revisit this case through the perspective of these two journalists. So when you decide to make it more of like that point of view from the journalist, do you go back and watch other films like the, I'm forgetting the, the Bob Woodward film or yeah, Zodiac or yeah. did you go back and watch those? Cause some of it can like even spotlight, it could, it could be boring if not done well. So how did you kind of start to think about some of those things? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I, I've seen all the president's men so many times, but we absolutely went back and looked at that film. Um, particularly because I think they photographed a newsroom better than anybody. 
and so we were constantly going back and, and looking to see how they photographed, you know, different scenes in the newsroom to give it the scope and the feel um, that they did and looked at, you know, other journalism movies, other true crime movies. There's, you know, we obviously took a lot of inspiration from David Fincher because he's just such a master of, of, of tone and, and um, you know, and, and how he, moves and places camera um the goal is to really create a you know a slow burn of a pressure cooker and to always feel the weight of these murders hanging over you know every moment of the film um so yeah we looked at movies like zodiac um and a, a handful of journalism movies as well do you feel, I mean, I feel like there's enough going on and it's a true story that maybe the marketing is, is not as difficult to describe, but do you, like, do you feel in, if I'm talking about Zodiac or, or even like seven, I would say those are horror movies. Does this feel like a horror movie? Like, where do you kind of see this movie? You know, I, I don't know that I would call it a horror movie, but, um, you know, it's depicting crimes that are without question horrific, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I didn't want to just tell a really dark story about, you know, an irredeemable story about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. I thought that these women's story was really inspiring. And, um, you know, the work that they did was really important. Um, so it, it felt like, you know, a worthwhile way to revisit this story, this case. So you're talking uh, to the daughters about these characters later played by Carrie Coon and Kira Knightley. Um, how much freedom do you feel like you have with those characters? Like you said, there wasn't a ton there. Do you kind of find a North star of who this person may be and then wrap your own character around it or tell me a little bit about that creation? Yeah. I mean, I always feel an obligation to the truth when you're dealing with real people. Um, you know, they left real families behind and you I really wanted to get it right. Um, of course, you know, you have to take some liberties, um, usually in the form of oversimplifications, you know, just to kind of tell, um, paint a picture in a really economical way. But some of the nuance that was lost is that, you know, before the Boston Strangler story, Loretta was not a novice reporter by any means, um, but she definitely was not necessarily getting the quality of stories that she wanted and mm-hmm. oftentimes was asked to write, um, you know, sort of lifestyle female interest stories like holiday recipes and things like that. Um, so, you know, of course, some things are just oversimplified. Um, some things are condensed and streamlined, but I really did my best to try and get the spirit of who these people were um, right can you walk me through a little bit about um like your whole process for this like i imagine a ton of research goes in but what does that look like logistically for you do you have a whiteboard up or like how do you know when your outline is done or some of those things yeah um so i did a ton of research i read everything that i could get my hands on and then um i uh talked to everybody that i could so i tracked down people who whose careers overlapped with Loretta and Jean, some people who were actually in the newsroom at the time of the Boston Strangler murders, just to really get a sense of, you know, both what, like how a newsroom works, how it worked back then, um, 
you know, what these women were like, how they approached their work, um, and, you know, how, how the case was perceived in the city at the time. Um, so, you know, I really like, I just, I spent months trying to get, um, you know, as complete a picture as possible. There have been some great books written. There's a great podcast called Stranglers, which is really like, um, you know, a, uh, they've just pulled together all of the different research that's available. Um, and then from there, try to synthesize a, you know, an outline for, for a film, something that could kind of make sense in the the shape of a, of a feature film. And, you know, it's like, like everything, it's just a lot of trial and error. Um, so you outline, you re-outline, you start writing pages, you hit a wall, find a problem, go back, re-outline. Um, and I think we're, with a story with so many incredible characters and so many different compelling details, it was really about streamlining. And so as you were like maybe contacting producers and some of those things, were you always coming on as the writer or director? And then what did you have beyond the script? Did you have like a lookbook or photographs or some of those things people may not think of? Yeah. So I pulled together images, um, I really outlined what I thought the movie should be. That, of course, has changed a bit, you know, throughout the writing and shooting and editing of the film. Um, and I put together a lookbook, a book of images that really took people through the story. So some of the images were documentary images from Boston at the time. Some are of these real characters. And then some are just to give a sense of the tone and feel of the film. Mm -hmm. Does that um, does it actually tell the story in kind of a, a a micro version? Like, there's a famous like Stranger Things look book going around, but it's really more about style as opposed to like we're a movie. I feel like you should go ahead and tell the plot. Is it is it telling the full plot in there? Yeah, I mean, when you get down to the stage where you're pitching the movie, um, people want to know the beginning, middle, and the end. They mm -hmm. want to know all the sort of you know key twists and turns of the story and you know um how it's going to unfold so it was very much you know my pitch was very much a 20 minute summary of the film with mm -hmm. both you know as i said a combination of documentary images and then things that just conveyed the tone and feel of the film um so they could get a sense of of the attention with a movie like this, if it ever felt like you were missing something in the screenplay, is the answer always to go do more research or go watch a movie? Or how did you kind of, is there any examples that come to mind like that? I mean, it depends. You know, there's sometimes where I was like, oh shit, I don't know how the newsroom, I don't know the mechanics of the newsroom for this yeah. scene. Right. So I would call somebody, I, I, you know, was lucky to connect with a number of different journalists, um, who had worked at newspapers in Boston, you know, dating back to the sixties. So I would call them up and they were very generous with their time and just say, Oh, it would look like this, or this is how that would go down. And then there were character things where I would, you know, sometimes call the, the Loretta and Jean's kids and ask them, you know, what was your memory of this? Um, and then there are obviously, you know, things that just are, are, more related to how do you make this work as a movie? So how do you take, where do you depart from reality or how do you shape this, bend it to fit into the shape of a feature film? 
Was there anything like you as someone who grew up in Boston that you wanted to present for viewers? Like we've kind of, maybe we've seen Scorsese's Boston or Matt Damon's Boston, but anything you did style wise or otherwise? Yeah. I mean, no, I, I really wanted to shy away from Boston accents. Um, you know, having grown up there, you know, I know a range of people from people with zero accent to people with very thick accents and, you know, I always find even if it's done really well, it in many ways is a, it can be a distraction. Mm-hmm. And I did not want people talking about the accents. I wanted them talking about the characters and the story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and these are all like wonderfully talented actors that we got to work with and they were all very capable of of doing it. But I, I, I really wanted to stay away from that. And then, it was just a, um, you know, one of the fun things um, that we got to do was try and bring this period back to life. Um, and I worked with an incredible production designer named John Goldsmith and a cinematographer Ben Cutchins and a costume designer named Arjun Bassin. And they were all just so detail oriented in trying to not only bring that that period back to life in a way that was really authentic to Boston, but also to, you know, the um, economic class of these people, to the neighborhoods, to, you know, what kind of clothes would women on a journalist salary in the early 60s be wearing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what would the wallpaper look in, look like in, you know, an old lady's apartment in downtown Boston back then? Um, so it was just, um, it was really trying to just create the most authentic uh, rendition of that in a way that transported people, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you're kind of maybe taking on greater responsibilities, like coming on as the writer director of this, I'm sure spending years on it. Are you still reaching out to mentors? Was there any uh, advice you got to help you with this film? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think it was on this one, it was mostly on the production side. Um, just, you know, it, it's always invaluable for me talking to people who have learned the hard lessons 10 times over mm-hmm. um, and to be able to call them and, and ask, you know, talk to them about either a decision that needs to be made or a challenge that we're facing. So I'm sure um, you've been a producer for years as well. I'm sure you've read hundreds or thousands of screenplays during that time. Are there any common problems you see in screenplays? You do you wish people would stop doing anything like that? I don't know. I mean, if it's it's really for me about one, is it a is it a great movie, but also is it a good read? And and I think it's sometimes you can just tell by looking like at how the words look on the page, whether they um really know what they're doing. Um that's obviously a gross generalization but oftentimes really experienced screenwriters you'll see less dense description um and that the you know things are really concise they're a good read they have an energy to it they know when to sort of tell the reader something versus when to stick to kind of more straight description and they all tend to kind of just look similar um to one another and that like you don't see these really dense big paragraphs of description and they um you know i think good screenplays just have a, a real um 
momentum to them. Um, and so I, you know, it's one of the first things I notice anyway. Is there any of that that you apply to your own work? Like, do you write longer first drafts, cutbacks, second drafts, anything like that, draft to draft that you do? I think like the first drafts always tend to be longer. Um, if I'm having trouble covering the distance, then I need to go back and re-outline because there's some fundamental problem there. You know, some element is missing or I just don't know the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as people say all the time, it's just about rewriting. Uh, so I always just try and get, get it out as quickly as possible. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's so much easier to rewrite and to try and improve something that's there than to stare at a blank page. Was there any, um, I'm not sure like when Hulu came on and some of those things, was there any pressure at all ever to make this a PG 13 movie? Was it always R? is that still even a discussion today with movies coming out? I think it is a discussion. Um, luckily not for this one. Um, this was always, you know, everybody agreed at the studio that this was going to be an R rated film, just given the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're almost out of time. Do you have any other advice for kind of novice writers? If you were trying to break in today, uh, where might you start with the hopes to be a writer director one day? Yeah. I mean, the industry is tough. I don't, I don't necessarily have fantastic advice how to, how to approach the industry, but I think one of the things that, that helped me more than anything was just getting my hands on good screenplays and reading those, seeing how great writers, um, you know, approached their craft, anything from, you know, the way in which they describe scenes to, you know, the, the structure of their movies, it just was incredibly instructive for me. And I, I'd really, you know, recommend people do that. And it's easy, you know, everything's online these days. So it's, it's, it's available to everybody who wants it. Do you think all of the old classics are still uh, good advice? Do you think anything has changed like fundamentally? fundamentally? Like, so I just went back and reread The Sopranos pilot, The Wire pilot, and they're a little heavier than you might think, kind of what you were saying, where I, I would assume, you know, 30 years later now, it's, they're 20 years later now, their scripts are maybe tighter than they were back then. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really dialed into like how the, the craft or the format has changed. Um, I think like if you have a story that you need to tell or a great idea, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna break through. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new chorus called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.